Welcome to the Urbanist Agenda, the podcast where we tell traffic engineers that they're not engineers. I am Jason from Not Just Bikes, and my co-host today is Steph from Build the Lanes, a YouTube channel all about traffic engineering. So Steph, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Jason. So yes, my name's Stefan, and I'm a transportation engineer from the United States. Studied civil engineering at California State University, Sacramento. Got my bachelor's of science. Worked for a bit over two years, two and a half years if you count internships. Got a little bit of experience at everything. Did some construction experience, did some government planning experience, did some design experience. Then I went right away and I worked for a consultant. Didn't really take me that long to figure out that it's not really a place I wanted to be. And it's not really a place that I could <laughs> practice my career in a way that would keep me sane. So I'm also have a German. So for quite a long time, I was thinking about ways where I could use my German citizenship to move to Europe to then maybe practice my career over there. And then when COVID came knocking, it kind of offered this opportunity to work from abroad without actually telling my employer I was working abroad, which <laughs> is what I ended up doing. The classic pull. <laughs> exactly. And I actually thought it would take them a few weeks to figure it out because in a way I'd already decided that I wanted to quit. But I thought, okay, well, I just want to move and I'll work for a couple of weeks. And then when they figure it out, then they let me go. And I kept waiting for the call where they figured it out and the call didn't come. And it ended up taking them like two and a half months to figure out that I had moved to Europe. And I kind of got so incredulous that I hadn't been caught yet. I just started to tell my coworkers what I was doing and they eventually figured it out. They were very upset because they kind of destroyed the narrative that they had told us that you can't work from abroad because a lot of people had talked about uh -huh. the idea of doing the same thing that what I did. You're like, well, Stefan did it. Why can't oh. we do it? You didn't even know. Yeah, right. Don't even get me started because I'm quite a bit older. And so I went through my career before working from home was like really a thing. And everyone always told us it wasn't possible. And I would try my hardest to do it. And now I actually see people doing it. I'm like, yes, it is possible. You can do it. But anyway, what we're here to talk about, though, is traffic engineering. So Stefan, you wrote an article a few months ago Basically about how America has no transportation engineers. And that's linked in the show notes for anybody that wants to read. It's a great article. And it really talks about Stefan's experience with the difference between how traffic engineering is done in the United States versus transportation engineering here in the Netherlands. Do you want to like really quickly summarize what that is for the people who haven't read it? Yeah, absolutely. So I was trying to come up with a way to understand how there's such a lack of knowledge at the professional level of how to build good roads and safe roads and safe streets. And the kind of the conclusion I came to after a while is just that the role of transportation engineer doesn't really exist. And what I mean by that is when you go to get a degree in it, there's almost no transportation programs in the entire United States. So the classical route is to study civil engineering. It's a four-year degree, and in your entire curriculum, you'll usually just get a single class, Introduction to Highway Engineering, as a civil engineer. And if you're really lucky, you'll get three classes if you get two elective. And if you're extremely lucky, you might get put on a transportation project as part of your senior project. And that's how much experience somebody with a transportation engineering degree has before they usually end up entering the workplace. So... Most of them have never designed a transportation project before they actually design them. They have very little background knowledge about what they're doing. And when they actually enter the career, everything's so dominated by arbitrary rules and standards that they never get to learn and practice field for the science it truly is. Yeah, because like some people would argue that you can learn on the job, right? Like you go to university, you learn the fundamentals, but then you go and learn on the job. And so you've seen that that isn't really happening in the United States in traffic engineering? Yes, because the job that everyone ends up entering is the job of a civil engineer, which is a role and a job we need because a civil engineer is essentially the professional who figures out things like the slope of the road, the thickness of the pavement, things like that. So they learn how to do things like the drafting and then the civil engineering part of the road really, really well. But the actual transportation engineering part where you figure out what's the optimal road configuration, what's the optimal lane configuration, how do you lower traffic deaths, that's the part they never end up learning. And everybody in the company just ends up leaning on the codes and regulations because they, they never learned it. 
So I'm just going to quote from your article here because I think it's good. So these engineers in the United States are really good at doing things like, as you say here, calculating the needed thickness of a road and what type of asphalt to use, where the drains at an intersection need to go and figuring out how much maintenance is needed. Yeah, these are important things. Obviously, you can't build roads without this. But this is what you're saying is the civil engineer side of things. Yes. Whereas what they're really missing and what they do have in the Netherlands that we'll get into is they're missing the transportation part of that, which is, for example, as you have in your article, what is the optimal width of an express road inside city limits? What are the most appropriate intersections for the desired use? How do we prioritize and balance congestion levels with other concerns such as safety, pollution or quality of life in the city? How do we practice ethics in the design phase? How should the road system be laid out in a network route level or, you know, how to fix congestion permanently, like properly fix congestion, not just make road bigger. One more lane, bro. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's more or less how I would describe it. So what do you see the difference being like in the education that someone going into this field gets in the Netherlands? How does it differ from what they get in the United States? Yes. So when I was Writing this article, I was trying to formulate my, my ideas a bit. I actually sat down with one of my coworkers who went through the whole Dutch program. So there is a little bit of variation. It depends what school you go to. But the biggest difference you'll find is that they have two separate subjects. They have civil technique software, tactical civil design or civil engineering. Yep. And then you have vicarious software, transportation planning and transportation engineering. And the curriculums between the two are very, very different. So somebody entering a transportation program is going to study things like road design, street design, sustainable safety. So there's around, I believe, 13 or 14 points of sustainable safety. We usually just talk about five of them, and they'll actually learn how to implement those in actual design. So they'll learn how to design calm streets, how to design higher efficient roads, deciding when to use an intersection, deciding when to use a roundabout and that kind of thing, and also the placement of signs and things like that. And the really interesting thing is that they're required to do an internship before they graduate. So you can't graduate until you've done a partially paid internship. And they do at least, I think by the time they graduate, they'll do three or four real projects or at least simulated projects. So they enter in with a lot more work experience a lot more drafting experience and a better idea of where their responsibilities begin and end and where, say, a civil engineers will come. So the transportation engineer in the Netherlands kind of gets these vague policy ideas and these spatial plans or community plans for, say, a newly proposed suburb. The transportation person will come up with the road layout, the widths and everything like that, and then they hand it off to the civil engineer to then make it construction ready where they can actually hand it off to a contractor to build. And in the U.S., it's all kind of mixed together in being a civil engineer. So we see a massive difference in the design of roads and streets in the United States versus the Netherlands. One of the things that I notice in particular that even me as I am an engineer, but the electrical kind, so I have nothing to do with this. Well, except for that one traffic engineering course that I took in first year where we treated car congestion as a fluid and going through a pipe and had to use fluid dynamics to calculate car movements, which is insane to find out that I've actually heard of DOT still using that as a thing, which is kind of messed up. But anyway, that is completely separate. But one of the things that I noticed is that there's a much stronger emphasis on road safety here, right? Whereas the United States, and I see it in Canada as well, has this laser focus on, well, level of service, quite frankly, which is basically how many cars can we fit down this pipe? Yes, yes, yes. So how do you see that play off? How do you see those priorities? How are they different between what you've seen in the United States and what you've seen in the Netherlands? So I think just the basic first step is that you have dedicated people who purely focus on things like road and street safety here, and they understand what causes traffic deaths and what causes crashes at intersections and things like that. There's specific roles and positions set up for that to kind of solve the problem. So back in, I believe it was 94 or 96, the Netherlands passed the safety sustainability law, right? Where they lay out all these principles of how they're trying to get traffic deaths to zero in the Netherlands over the long term. And the reason why the design here is so much better is that they studied traffic safety scientifically. So what the first point you will read in sustainable safety is that they say, do not put 
travel services with a heavy traffic function through residential zones. Don't do that. Right. Don't put that through closed neighborhoods because that's where the majority of deaths and crashes come from. A kid playing on the front lawn is not very compatible with some guy in his pickup truck who's going speeding down at 50 or 60 kilometers an hour. And that's really kind of where they start at point one. Whereas in the U.S., the goal is there. They've adopted Vision Zero. It's just that the people that they're using to try to get to Vision Zero, right, have only taken one or two classes and they're trying to do it by arbitrarily pacing standards and things like that. So I think probably my favorite example is the painted green bike lanes. And to be fair, it's not just the U.S., right? It's all over North America. Right. To them, like, okay, well, we need to make the roads safer, so we need to add a bike lane, right? But they don't realize that they're not making the road any safer. They're just painting a bike lane over a really, really dangerous road. And of course, it has really predictable and really tragic consequences. So I would say that the reason why the road safety is better is that they approach, they just approach it with a better understanding because they've studied it more. Whereas we kind of just do it a little bit more ad hoc. And we're often just waiting around for the traffic authority to give us a new updated standard that we can then just start copying and pasting to all the road projects we work on. Yeah. And one of the other differences that I notice from reading the approach is that sustainable safety also brings in a psychological component to it, because I think one of the things that I really see when traffic engineers in North America talk, they talk about cars like as if they're these like separate things, as opposed to identifying that cars are driven by people and people have like a psychological component to them. It's very frustrating to see the discussions of road safety in North America because a lot of it is based on extremely old, outdated research from the 1950s and 1960s that was only ever meant for use on rural roads. So they found, for example, that rural roads, if you make them more straight as opposed to being curvy, it's safer. If you make the lanes wider, it's safer because cars won't bump into each other. And those studies in the 50s were done very much in the context of a rural road. Yes. But then all of that has just been copy-pasted right into cities. Yes. And it doesn't acknowledge that when, for instance, you make the road straighter and you make the road wider, people will drive faster because they feel safer. And that's the psychological component that's missed there. They just look at it and say, well, well, if the road's wider then cars won't bump into each other. And if the road's straighter, then people can just drive in a straight line and that's easier and they're not going to crash. Completely ignoring the fact that when you drive these massive, big, wide, straight roads right through the center of cities, a whole bunch of people drive and they drive really fast, which then makes it more dangerous for everyone, especially people outside of a car. Absolutely. I mean, just imagine for a moment if you're in charge of a civil engineering company, you've never really studied transportation engineering, and you get this contract to maybe rebuild one of the main streets that go through the downtown, and you're trying to figure out the best way to do it, and no one's there to really tell you how to do it. So what do you do? Oh, I found some safety research on roads. Let's just implement this. You know, no one's telling me, no, okay, let's do that. And then the next guy sees you do that, so then they do it. The next guy sees them, so they just start copying and pasting, copying and pasting. What I find is that a lot of this North American stuff, there were these outdated standards based on rural roads that were then just applied to cities. And then these are now the standard, right? This is now the guidebook. This is what engineers work against. They're always working against this guidebook of standards. And even though it's provenly insane, right? Like if you were doing this in the 1950s or the 1960s, you could understand it, right? Even then there was evidence that this wasn't the right thing to do in cities, but you could kind of understand it, that it wasn't really well studied. But we have a lot of data now, yes. especially from the 70s, 80s, 90s, in places like the Netherlands, but also in Sweden with their Vision Zero, not like the Vision Zero that North American companies just use as a marketing term, but the actual Vision Zero that focused on many different elements of safety, including the psychology of it, out of Sweden. We know that these approaches don't work, but the standards haven't been changed in North America. And one of the most frustrating things I find is that they're very obviously not working. Like road deaths are going up in the United States and people start making all these excuses. Oh, it's because phones are out or it's because distracted pedestrians or whatever. They come up with these excuses, but phones exist all over the world, right? 
But it's in the U.S. and Canada that, like, for example, pedestrian deaths are now at the highest level they've been in over 10 years. And it's just clearly not working. But the engineers, every time these conversations come up, they just go back, oh, well, that's the standard. That's the standard. And we build to the standard. And there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of acknowledgement in the profession at large that the standard's not working. Yes. So I think there's a couple things there. So there's a really interesting fact. So the safest travel surfaces to travel on are two things, freeways mm-hmm. and quiet residential streets. Because, you know, freeways, because it's meant for really fast movement, you can make that really, really safe if you design for it. And the most dangerous travel surfaces are everything else in between, you know, especially the strobes where it tries to combine the complexity and the high speeds. When it comes to standards, in a way, it's kind of a lie because we don't really even have the standards in the U.S. So we have what we call the METCD, the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices. And all that was ever really meant to be was to standardize how we use traffic lane markings, how stoplights are installed. The idea was that you don't have to deal with a completely different kind of traffic regulation every time you go to a different city. You know, just imagine the chaos of every signal. Right. Every town has a slightly different stop sign. Every town has a slightly different traffic light. Yes. And then so what we don't have is we don't really have a book of common transportation engineering practices. So in the Netherlands, they have the CROV that publishes guides for the transportation engineers here. We don't really have something like that in the U.S. So what they use instead are these standards that the county or the city or whatever government organization you work for has. But the really dumb thing is that the standards are not standardized. So if you're working within the city of Sacramento, the city of Sacramento has a standard, right? Then the county of Sacramento has their own standards. You could be working with the Department of Environment in Sacramento County, and they might have their own standards around their parks. And it's crazy because every time you do a new project, when you're doing the road, you're just saying, well, we're doing this road and we're just going to bring it up to the county standard. So when the transportation engineer will tell you like, well, that's not a standard. You'll just ask them what standard you guys have thousands of different kinds of standards. What makes one standard better than the other? And this is where you kind of have like a lot of mumbling and shuffling the papers and things like that. (laughs) So the standards are not standardized. So In my experience dealing, and honestly, I am not entirely sure what the standard is if it exists in Canada, but every interaction I've ever had with a traffic engineer in Canada has been horrendously frustrating. Yes. They do default to these standards all the time. They talk in some very needlessly technical language. And I find that they hide behind some of these standards and technical language as well. And my experience would be in the context of coming to a public meeting because there is a street or strode or road that is too dangerous and people are like literally being killed. And so the community is upset that people have died. And that's the context under which we're talking to the traffic engineers. And then they're just like, well, it complies with the standard. Yeah. Which I don't think is a really acceptable answer when people are getting killed. I think it's also, I talked about this in the article a little bit. I think there's a lot of collective insecurity in the industry because I think deep down a lot of them are aware of it. And that has to be really embarrassing. Like just imagine like you went to school for this, you paid a lot of money for your college degree to study this field. It's your jobs, your income depends on it. And now that you go into this community meeting, are you supposed to admit hey, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I have this rule book I'm supposed to follow no matter what. So this is what I'm going to wave around instead. But I found that generally when somebody understands a topic really, really well, they can use very easy to understand simple language to explain it. And when people don't do that, when they use very technical language, those tend to be the people who don't understand it as well, because you have to understand something really well to explain it well to somebody else, I found. And the best traffic engineers I've ever met are the ones who do admit their own ignorance. And they can just break down all these technical terms into really simple English for people. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the person that always comes to mind, of course, is Chuck Marone from Strong Towns, who, for anybody who's not aware, Strong Towns is a nonprofit organization started by a U.S. traffic engineer who originally was looking at the financial sustainability of cities. He was building a bunch of giant roads and strodes, and I'll get to strodes in a second. 
all over his city and was thinking, wow, these things are really expensive. We don't have the money for this, but I'm sure somebody's got it figured out. And then as he started digging, he found actually nobody's got it figured out. And it wasn't just his city. It was every city. And not only that, they were building fundamentally dangerous infrastructure that pretty much was well known that this was dangerous, but they were all doing it anyway. And so he's been on the rampage since at least, I think it's 2013, maybe a little longer than that. So it's, you know, it's talking a decade now, trying to reform traffic engineering as a profession. And he's getting a huge amount of pushback on that from the traffic engineering profession. So this is one of these things that really frustrates me about it, because when I do complain about traffic engineers online, I get traffic engineers coming through and being, well, you know, not all traffic engineers and we're trying to fix things and we understand all this stuff. But then when actual push comes to shove, it's more of this response like what Chuck has got from the Minnesota DOT that they're not willing to change this stuff. They have their standards, they have their structures, and they're not really open to these discussions. So is this something that you've seen in the US as well, that there's this level of, I guess, the higher ups, if you will, the gray beards in the industry, just this is the way it is, and it's not going to change? Yeah, I think it's like kind of like any a lot of industries, the longer somebody works there, I think over time, people kind of get resistant to any kind of change, especially if it's like a young person coming in telling them like, oh, hey, everything you're doing is wrong. So can we do it differently, please? And it gets double tricky, because then the person who's entering it, is going to feel extremely nervous about confronting somebody who's worked 20 years of experience, right? And of course, the person who's been working for 20 years has all the power, right? And is actually going to decide how the project goes. So I've seen this happen as well. Like when I worked for a consultant was that we had some very progressive transportation and traffic engineers who kind of had some other ideas, but just kind of how the company was built, it just like those ideas kind of got filtered out more and more and more and more. And then by the time it actually came to doing the plan, none of them ended up making it into the design. Then when you work in an environment like that for five or 10 years, you just get a bit numb to it. And then I think a lot of times people kind of become part of the problem because they tried changing it when they got in and they failed and they become part of the system. And you got some pushback on this article, right? You know, it's interesting. I thought I didn't until I went to Reddit. <laughs> when I went into civil, and I wonder if I, it was a good idea doing that because I know how to link it. Like, no, it's never a good idea to go to Reddit. Never. Just stop, stop. <laughs> go touch grass. Exactly. Go touch grassy tram tracks. Exactly. <laughs> on LinkedIn, everyone is very professional. I was surprised because I was expecting people to attack me on LinkedIn or any other platform. I even got a lot of traffic engineers who reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, hey, you know, thank you for writing this. Like, I've been thinking something like this, but I haven't been able to put it into words, really. And then I made the mistake of going on to read on civil engineering. I was like, oh, that's where all of it ended up being. So I was like, <laughs> it's weird to hear people who don't know you have such strong opinions about you because they were making all these like personal assumptions about me. And I was like, you don't know me. You never met me. But what I found is that a lot of it came from, I felt like they were assuming I was calling them stupid or like they weren't qualified. And what I was really trying to say in the article is that you're trying to do something that you've never been trained for, or it's kind of like medicine back in the dark ages. Like the reason why so many people died from the Black Death is because medicine didn't exist. You know, like doctors weren't really a thing. There were people who tried to be doctors, but they couldn't really be doctors. But I think what happened with a lot of those people on Reddit is they read the first like two or three paragraphs, then they just kind of assumed and then they just stopped reading. Yes. You just want to go back to the Middle Ages and say, it's the rats, guys. It's the rats. Get rid of the rats and you'll be fine. Heretic. Heretic. <laughs> it's not the posy. Posy's not going to solve it. It's not the humors. It's <laughs> We're following the sewage standards. We're not doing anything rough. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can totally see that. Like people don't want to be told that their profession is a sham, that they're totally down the wrong path. And I mean, I don't want to say that this is a complete like fraud. I don't think there are people in traffic engineering in the United States who are being like willfully malicious or they're not stupid because they got an engineering degree. You can't be stupid. But I think you can be so steeped in it that you're not able to see it from the broader perspective anymore. Like you're so down deep in the weeds, you're down in the math and you're down in the standards and you just you can't like lift yourself up to say, like the whole path that we're on here is the wrong one. 
Yeah. And I'm really lucky because I had the benefit of starting at a community college and I was very lucky to have an outstanding professor who taught, you know, the intro engineering classes. And he told us interesting story. He said, the biggest problem we have with engineers when they enter the industry, because he was a mechanical engineer and a material science engineer. He said, we get engineers who come in and their job is to design baby strollers and they design the baby strollers with aircraft precision. Like they use tolerances and precision on bearings that are completely inappropriate for baby strollers. And they end up making an $800 baby stroller that nobody's going to buy because it's cool <laughs> that you designed it that way, but it's completely like unnecessary and inappropriate. But you talked about like trying to maximize this one variable without thinking about the bigger picture. And so he really instilled that in me. Right. And then when I started getting more into transportation, we had our textbook. And one thing I read was, they were talking about all green phases where pedestrians can cross all over an intersection all at once. They call it, I think, the barn stance. And they talked about how that can be a solution. But there was a really interesting part of it. They said, we don't recommend this for downtowns because that would cause an unacceptably high delay in traffic for people who are driving through downtown. And then I was like, oh my God, this is the same thing. This is hyper-focusing on that single variable. They're still very smart, right. but they're completely ignoring the bigger picture. Like the traffic engineer doesn't learn, okay, well, I'm supposed to minimize delay, but I never learned how to balance that with literally everything else. Like you're only as good of an engineer if you know what environment you're working in. You don't work in a vacuum. That really touches on basically every interaction I've ever had with any North American traffic engineer ever, which is that they are hyper-focused on moving as many cars as possible. And when I've had discussions with professionals in the Netherlands, there's a lot more of a discussion about transportation systems. And the like layman's level description is you're concerned about moving people, not cars. Yeah. But they talk more in terms of the whole transportation system and how it works together. Whereas every single conversation with a traffic engineer in North America is always about, we got to move cars. We can't have delays. The cars have to move. We need to maximize flow. We need to maximize level of service. It's all around that moving cars, moving cars, and moving cars is the absolute peak, most important thing that they can possibly do. And everything else is seen through the lens of that flow. Yes. And to an insane degree, I think as an outsider, when I look at this, it's to an absolutely ridiculous degree, to the point of absurdity. And I think that example you said, where you're talking about the scramble crossings where pedestrians can cross all they want, like, don't use it downtown. Well, where the hell do you think the pedestrians are? Like, they're downtown. And that was in the textbook. Yeah, right? And it's written into a textbook. Like, how does that even get written? How does anyone not think, well, wait a second. Like, in a downtown, we want people to be walking. That's what they should be doing. We should be making it easier for people to walk. And this kind of intersection means you don't have to cross twice. You can go, like, diagonally through the intersection. And that's a good thing. Yes. To write that in a textbook is insane. And I think that really gets to my major problem with traffic engineering in North America is that's insane. That's just insane. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people who've had the same experience you had because again, I was expecting a huge amount of hate online, but I was really surprised at how much positivity I got back because a lot of people said, you really kind of hit the nail on the head. Like, I feel like my frustration is valid now. And another thing you just reminded me of is that Whenever somebody like you tries to bring up points saying, oh, people want to walk downtown, people like to walk downtown, you say something that is completely rooted in common sense. And they will say, well, do you have any studies or literature that will then back up something you're saying? <laughs> like they will ask you to find a study to back up the most obvious things in the world. But then they don't have any studies to prove that their own traffic study works. So if you ever want to break a traffic system from a traffic engineer, just ask them to run their model for another five or six years. Like the models break themselves because they say, okay, we're going to have a three or 4% growth of traffic every single year. So you just have to fast forward at 10 years and then their, their whole system breaks down. So I always counter with, can you cite me a single traffic study that ended up being true past the window of five years? Hmm. And I always get complete silence. Like they can't find one. Well, I mean, and this is, again, going back to the psychological component that traffic engineers, we see this all the time with state departments of transportation, DOTs, that they're always looking at these traffic projections. And I think I actually talked about that in an earlier podcast episode, 
that these traffic projections are also often always wrong in some cases. Like, and there's cities where they're wrong every single year, but they keep saying traffic's going to go up, traffic's going to go up, traffic's going to go up, even as it's not going up. Like this happened in and around Washington, D.C., when they did a bunch of changes to improve cycling and public transit, the kind of things that get people out of cars, traffic volumes actually went down because people had viable alternatives to driving, but they kept saying that they would go up. And part of the problem is that the entire traffic engineering profession, being civil engineers, they build things. You get paid to build things. You don't get paid to not build things. And so when the only thing that you're looking at is roads, and you're not looking at the rest of the transportation system, you're there to build more roads. Like the entire industry is set up to build more roads and to always be building more roads and wider roads and more highways and everything else. But we also know from induced demand, which this has been like proven beyond a shadow of a doubt for literally decades, that when you build more roads, it makes it easier to drive and cheaper in terms of time and more people drive. And so you end up with this ridiculous situation where they just keep building more and more roads, which induces more and more driving, which just creates more and more congestion, which then the engineers jump on and say, oh my God, we got congestion, we got to fix this. And their only toolbox is more roads. Yes. And I would say the thing is like a civil engineer isn't going to understand induced demand because again, their job is to do the civil part of a road construction and they literally is their job to design and build more roads. So that's one reason you see is because they don't quite understand it either. And then the other thing is that there's never a question of we just purely react to traffic like it's a liquid, like it's water, like it's water at a dam. And no one asks the question what kind of traffic flows do we want to see in the next five to 10 years? Because then you can actually do it proactively. You can say, okay, well, we actually, we want to bring traffic down by 10%. Okay, well, then how do we do that? And the problem is that we don't have the professional mostly that who can solve that question. So then we go back to the, okay, well, let's just assume a two or 3% increase and let's just keep doing what we're doing. And then the other part about the system is that there's not just one party, you have like consultants, you have the DOTs, you have states. So it's not like you have this like one person who's in charge of it. It's like you have this dance of five or six different entities who are doing something that's completely insane, but no one's willing to say first, like say like, stop, we have to stop doing this. This is completely ridiculous because the consultant will say, we're just doing what the city has asked us to do, right? The city is saying, well, we're just using the grant money for what the state's telling us to do, the state government will say, well, this is what the voters want. And then the dance goes on and on and on and on. Right. Yeah. And with no end in sight, right? Yeah. I mean, it has to end eventually because Chuck Marone said that, you know, you will bankrupt yourself. Like that's kind of like when reality comes calling is that if you keep assuming a growth in 2% every year, well, the city will be completely destroyed and we're going to be driving down 40 lane roads like Lane Man has created. <laughs> <laughs> like Lane Man. I mean, and we are seeing this in North America. Cities are literally bankrupting themselves, building more and more roads. Like I made a video about a road widening in my hometown of London, Ontario, Wonderland Road, that, you know, they have a lot of what they think is a problem with traffic there. And their solution was to undertake what was their largest infrastructure project in history which was widening a five-lane stroke to a seven-lane stroke. Oof. About $250 million That's insane. to do this, which is bonkers. This is a city with just over 400,000 people. That's and like we don't have roads that wide within cities anywhere in the Netherlands, even in Amsterdam with more than twice the population. That's wider than some highways. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And then they're like, well, you know, when we do the project, we'll also put some bike lanes along the side and stuff like that. But they are literally bankrupting themselves. Like the largest infrastructure project in your city's history should not be widening one road. That's ridiculous. Like, I don't understand how people look at this and think, yes, that will be the thing. That is going to be our largest infrastructure project in history. It's just, but they have only one, well, it's really the, well, he has a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Like, exactly. that's it. They have one tool. Exactly. They can't look at this and think, you know, we really need to look at this differently. But the problem is, it's this much larger holistic view, which getting back to your original point in the article, Nobody's looking at that. Nobody's looking at the fact that it's like, well, maybe we need to have destinations closer to one another. Maybe we need to have 
viable public transport. Maybe we need to remove parking minimums so that the entire city is not just a bunch of parking lots. Like that's what's ultimately causing this, right? Because one of the things I got, I actually got asked to go on the radio on CBC Radio London to talk about this video when I made it about Wonderland Road. And they asked me the question, if you were the mayor of London and could do anything you wanted, you had infinite money, how would you fix Wonderland Road? And the problem is there is no solution to Wonderland Road. There is no one solution to Wonderland Road. It's this whole holistic problem. This is just this one bottleneck that this whole system has caused. Yes. And you can't solve it by one project on Wonderland Road. But then again, that's the way they look at it. They're like, oh, well, bunch of traffic here, let's widen it. Bunch of traffic over there, let's widen it. Bunch of traffic here, let's widen it. It's ridiculous. But that's the path that these cities have put themselves on to the point of literal bankruptcy. Yeah, it's kind of like being collectively brain dead in a way. Like everything looks like a hammer to you. And again, it's like you always resort to the default because they can try to do something they've never done before, right? And the professional who's never been trained for it has to try to do it. Like, okay, how do we actually bring traffic counts down? How do we do this in a way we've never done before? Or do we just pass on the problem to the next person and I'll just say well, we added an extra lane to the road. I found that the best times when it comes to strolls like Wonder Lane Road is just first ask them, okay, well, what do you want this thing to do? Like, do you want to go shopping easily here? Or do you want to be able to drive quickly? What is it you want to do? And then based on their answer, I could say, okay, well, this is what you want to do because you can then very much easily empirically prove saying, okay, well, if you want to drive quickly, you need fewer stops. That's kind of the evil accidental genius of Strodes is that it's so terrible and it's such a mess that if you don't decide what you want from it ahead of time, you're never going to get to a solution because it's not just as simple as fixing one little intersection or removing a lane here, adding some dashed green paint. The problem is that it's this thing that tries to do everything and can't do anything. Right. We've used the term strode several times, and I have to assume there's somebody listening who's like, what the hell is a strode? Because I know that this is something that we all talk about all the time, but this is a term invented ultimately by strong towns. So let me very quickly, <laughs> I've got a video on this. You can search YouTube for strode. It'll be the first thing to pop up, S-T-R-O-A-D. But the idea of a strode was something coined by Chuck Marone from Strong Towns that it is a street that tries to act like a road. A road is a quick way of getting from point A to point B. You can think of a railroad, but you could also think of a highway. And a street is a destination, the place that you go, the place where all the stuff is. And a strode tries to do both. And when you know what a strode is and you live in North America, you realize that almost everything is a strode, which is really crazy because there are none in the Netherlands. There are no strodes. I've had Dutch people tell me there are, and every time it is not a strode. But strodes are not a thing here, and yet they are everywhere in North America. They are those four to six lane roads with the turning lanes that have all the driveways off of them, with all the shops and with all the traffic lights. And these are just disastrous environments. They're disastrous financially. They're disastrous in terms of safety, too. They are the most dangerous places to be because they are trying to mix the high speed of roads to to try to get from one place to another with all the destinations with cars turning in and out. And this is one of these things that in my video, I talked about this and maybe you can talk about it a little bit because you're literally in this industry, but we don't have strodes in the Netherlands, right? We got rid of this concept of this mixing something that gets you from point A to point B and the destination. We don't do that here. So how do the Netherlands, how do they do that here in the Netherlands? Yeah, I read Chuck's book also, and I have to really give him credit because he basically said without realizing it, the exact thing they say in the Netherlands. So he calls it a road or a street. You know, the word for a road in the Netherlands is Kebietonslotingsweg. That's a bit of a mouthful. And then the street is Ertugensweg. But they describe more as through movements. So for roads, they call it the Verkehrsfunksi or the Stromfunksi, which means like the traffic function or the through function. So they say the road is where you see movements where people just want to go straight for a while quickly. And to interrupt just for a second, that's the place that focusing on flow actually makes sense. Yes. Right? Yes. Like that's the place where you can say, yes, let's maximize the flow of this road. That makes sense. Yes. Because we're building it for flow. That's what we want. Yes. Right. Exactly. And then the other one is what they call for life's function. It doesn't quite translate, but it kind of translates into access functions and staying functions. So that's where. You can walk across the street very easily. You can buy a coffee. You can park your car. You can 
ride your bicycle down the middle. And both are really, really important. Like you can't, obviously, if you had no streets, you know, like you would never end up getting anywhere, right? And if you only had streets, then it would be very hard to get anywhere at all. So because they base it off a of function, right? That's how the Dutch came up with their whole categorization system. They asked, okay, what do we want to see? Okay, let's design for that. And then their freeway system is just an extension of that concept. So almost every single Dutch freeway will go around a city right. instead of through the city because they say, okay, well, this is built from a city to city movement, right? You're not going to use this travel surface for your trips inside of the city. So the Dutch don't have highways that plow through the middle of their cities either here. I think the closest thing to that is Amsterdam, sort of with how it goes around in the ring, but not really. It's not quite the same. Yeah. I mean, the problem was is that the Netherlands did have American traffic engineers coming in in the 60s to advise them on how to build things properly. Yes, properly. And they ended up doing some big mistakes because of that that we're still suffering from. But the original purpose of the interstate highway system in the United States was supposed to be that getting from city to city. And once you got to the city, there was supposed to be a ring and it wasn't supposed to go into the city. That was never the original intention of even the interstate highway system in the United States. But it changed to the idea that highways would bring you directly into the city. And almost every city in North America, with very, very few exceptions, you know, like places like Vancouver, for example, and actually, surprisingly, my hometown of London, Ontario, never had urban freeways that plowed through the center of the city. Because I always get on my channel people saying, oh, you know, Europe can be like that because they have old cities. You know, we don't have that kind of thing. And they're completely ignorant of history because the United States did have walkable cities with streets and they just bulldoze them in order to build highways through them. And then in order, once you get the highways in there, you, then you need all the parking lots. And so they bulldozed even more to build parking lots. And that is the little quip that I use all the time in my videos that America was not designed for the car. It was bulldozed for the car. Yes. And those highways going into cities are insane. They should not exist. And the more of them that are removed, the better. Yes, it's 90%. But it's difficult to undo that damage once it's been done, right? Once your urban fabric has been bulldozed to put a highway through it, then that's the end. Yeah, it's hard to know what you've lost if you go forward a few generations and they never realize what used to be there. Kind of the insane evil genius of it is that to us, you know, because we're more aware of it, it's obviously terrible. But for someone who kind of grew up and doesn't know any better, right? They don't realize what they've lost. They don't realize, hey, there used to be a historic downtown here. And there's all these collective stories of history and culture that kind of just got bulldozed and it's not here anymore. And it's not like it was always there. Yeah. And when Europe isn't a monolith either. Like if you want to see like, you know, that there was a bad traffic plan, you just have to hop over the border to Belgium. Like it's not like yeah. uh, every European country is the same. <laughs> you know, like, this is one of these things that I talked about, actually, just on the last episode of this podcast. Sorry, Belgians, I, I if recorded. you're listening. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not sorry. Yeah. I lived in Belgium. I just recorded an episode of this podcast with my wife because we were talking about how we've lived here for five years. And one of the things we mentioned is we were really glad that we had lived in Belgium because we got to see with our own eyes, and our own experiences, that Europe's not great just because it's old. Like, it's not some inevitable thing. And Belgium did bulldoze huge amounts of their city. Brussels, for example, has seen not always highways, although they do have highways, but all these very, very large boulevards yeah. that weren't always like that. They bulldozed a whole bunch of houses in order to build them. And Brussels has, unsurprisingly, some of the worst traffic in the EU. And it's because they destroyed their urban fabric to drive as many cars in as possible. I think if you want to take into this most insane extreme, is in Paris with the Arc de Triomphe. Because if you think about it, yeah. the Arc de Triomphe is this beautiful structure that was built for parades, national pride. You know, it's a thing every French person was proud of it. And, you know, Napoleon, right, had it built so he could march his armies through when they were coming back from their successful campaigns. And they turned it into like a gigantic seven car rotary so nobody can really like go to it anymore. It is like, insane. If you think about it, like this is a national monument. Let's cover it up in car exhaust. Let's make it where nobody can get to there. And let's turn the symbol of pride and victory into just car infrastructure. Like, I mean, even the United States, like, imagine if we said, we're going to put an, an eight-lane rotary ring around the Washington Monument. Like, that's basically <laughs> yeah. what Paris did. So it's like when people say, yeah, of course Europe has done it. Like, it's... Yeah. Yeah, like terrible traffic engineering is not just an American thing. They tend to do it the worst, but it's certainly not only 
done in the United States. Yes, that's true. But coming back to the topic of the way traffic engineers operate in the U.S. and in some other countries as well, it is this emphasis on the flow of traffic over literally everything else. And I think you had a good analogy here that like if any other type of engineering did this kind of thing, like the world would fall apart. You were joking that if an engineer who was building water infrastructure was only concerned about how much water flowed through the pipes, but nothing else. Like, what would happen, right? Like, it's full of cholera, it's full of sewage. But they're like, no, 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 we have to maximize flow through this pipe. Yes. I've actually been wanting to make this comic for a while. So if you're listening and you want to steal this idea, feel free. It's like if you had two dam engineers, and you know how you have the outflow pipes for water to go through the dam? It's kind of like them saying, we need to widen the pipe in anticipation of higher future outflows. And of course, then widening the pipe causes more water to run through them, and they just keep doing that until they destroy the dam because they made the pipe too big and the dam failed. Like, and I mean, that's really it though, right? Like this insane emphasis on the flow of traffic at the expense of literally everything else, most importantly, safety, but also cost, that is literally happening with traffic engineering. Yes. Which is why I know you've joked that like traffic engineers aren't even engineers. Like how can you call yourself an engineer when you do this? It's more like bricklaying. And I don't mean to insult anyone who's in the business of laying bricks, but yeah, it's just, <laughs> but think about if you're just copying and pasting in something and not understand the scientific benefit of it, it's more like a trade, sort of, right? Like you're not being a researcher, you're just laying bricks on top of one another. You don't necessarily have to understand, okay, I'm laying bricks. I don't know what environment I'm supposed to do it in. I don't know like where good a place for a brick building is, but I'm just laying bricks because that's what the bricklaying manual is telling me to do is we're building bricks all day. All right. Well, we're going to piss off every traffic engineer here. Maybe there's a few of them left. So I think we've got a few minutes left to piss off the rest of them. (laughs) The one thing I do want to tell everybody to watch is a very old Strong Towns video with this really kind of cheesy robotic voice that I think everybody should watch. Because when I watch it, I was like, oh, my God, this is literally every single interaction I've ever had with a traffic engineer ever. Chuck has just nailed this. And the reason he's nailed it, he's admitted it in his books, is that the traffic engineer in this video, it's called Conversations with an Engineer. I'll put the link in the show notes. Conversations with an Engineer on YouTube. The reason why it's so accurate is because Chuck has admitted that he is the engineer. Like he realized this was him early in his career. He was literally the one saying these things. So this is a video where a resident, a concerned resident, is interested in a traffic engineering project that's underway because they're building a tax subsidy zone on the edge of town in order to try to bring in some... (laughs) The whole thing is an insane situation, but it's true. And it's based on real true things that actually happen. So when you watch it, realize everything that you're seeing is true. It's not satire, it's real. Yeah, it is a satire, but it's totally based on reality. So it's like, yeah, it's not really satire, is it? It's basically just like, this is what actually happens. So this supposed, you know, resident is concerned about that, just wants to know more information about it. And she finds out that her street is considered not sufficient and not safe. Why is it not safe? Even though nobody's ever been injured there, nobody's ever been killed there, and it's perfectly fine, quiet residential street. It's not safe because it doesn't meet the standard. And the standard says it has to be flat. And the grade, you know, he goes on about the grade. The standard says it needs to be straight. The standard says that it's not going to be sufficient for traffic projection, so it needs to be widened. And then, of course, it's not going to be safe to cross anymore, so they have to build a pedestrian overpass. (laughs) And, you know, of course, the resident is like, well, I can cross the street today, so why do I need a pedestrian overpass? Like, why do I need any of this? But it really, really does, just does a brilliant job of showing just how insane actual traffic engineering is in North America, that they are just so laser focused on this is the standard and we need to maximize for the flow of cars that absolutely everything else gets left aside. And honestly, it would be funny if it was only bankrupting cities. (laughs) I mean, that's not even funny, but it's not funny at all because people are literally dying. The United States and Canada have the most dangerous roads in the developed world. And it's almost entirely because of this. Yes. I think we hit like over 40,000 now every year. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to become a transportation engineer. I mean, people ask me, why did you move to the Netherlands? I kind of struggled to give them an answer because I was like trying to, okay, how do I summarize this 10 minute conversation? And I found I came to the Netherlands because I wanted to be a transportation engineer because I couldn't be one in the U.S. Right. Like I could not learn. I was a civil engineer in the U.S. and wanted to be a transportation engineer. 
And the traffic engineer in the video doesn't understand the difference between what a through movement is and what a maxis movement is. So, yeah, it's tragic. <laughs> well, I imagine that we could talk about this all night. And I will definitely have you on the podcast again, because I know, because I know we've chatted before several times, we've met up several times, that we have lots of things to talk about. But I think that's probably a good place to cap it. So you came to the Netherlands because you wanted to be a transportation engineer instead of a traffic engineer. That's right. Anything you want to plug before we go? I think certainly your YouTube channel, Build the Lanes. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think I'm going to be having a video coming out this weekend about roundabouts. So if you're listening and you want to Look up Build the Lanes. And well, by the time anyone hears this, that will have been out for weeks. So oh, go check out Build the Lanes. <laughs> go check out his video about roundabouts. Yeah, and I'm also on TikTok. Steph the Transpo Dude. Oh, yeah. Steph the Transpo Dude on TikTok. Because I think you were on TikTok before YouTube, or you went to YouTube, then TikTok, then back. But anyway, you're also on TikTok as Steph the Transpo Dude. But definitely check out Stefan's stuff, because I think it's brilliant to see somebody who actually has lived in the United States, has worked in the United States as a traffic engineer, has come here, and he sees differences that I would never spot. Like, I know a lot of people say, oh, you point out things that I never thought of, but Stefan points out things that I've never thought of either, because it's that context that's necessary. And he's got some great content that really shows you the sort of nitty gritty of why things are so much better here in the Netherlands. So thanks so much for coming on, Stefan. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Urbanist Agenda. As usual, all new episodes will be available early on Nebula. So if you're not already a Nebula subscriber, now might be a good time. You can sign up at nebula.tv agenda. And with a subscription to Nebula, you not only support this podcast, you also get access to content by over 150 creators. That's everything from videos to podcasts to classes and more. Nebula is also constantly adding new Nebula originals, which are high-budget productions on a wide range of interesting topics. If you use our link, which again is nebula.tv agenda, you'll get a discount on a yearly subscription, which brings it down to only 30 bucks a year. I'm a big fan of Nebula, which is why all of my Not Just Bikes videos are available there, as well as some that are only available on Nebula, and of course, all episodes of The Urbanist Agenda. So if you're not already a Nebula subscriber, go check it out today. And thanks again for listening.